today on Ag News Daily. And so our seed is gold colored and it has a lot like half the fiber of the non the regular penny crack. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. It's another foggy, misty, dreary day in the heartland, but we're bringing you some cheer nonetheless. I'm Mike Pearson, joined by Delaney Howell. And Delaney, how are you doing? You bringing some cheer? Sure. I can pretend to bring some cheer. It's still gloomy out. That's what it's all about. you got to fake it till you make it, Delaney. Fake it till you make it, Mike. Is that what you do? That's. I'm still faking it. Yes, indeed. <laughs> Well, let's see. We are going to have a very interesting conversation for our hashtag Tech Tuesday, aren't we? Yes, very interesting. How did you find it, Mike? Fill us in. So I found our Tech Tuesday conversation. We're talking to a company called Arvigenics. They are taking penny crests and converting it to a cash crop. So, listeners, you're going to want to stay tuned, especially if you're in the Corn Belt. That's where it's most suited. But I found them actually, just with the, the help of a really good old friend of mine. The Googler. The Googler, yes, indeed. <laughs> um, I was just Googling around looking up for interesting tech companies, and they have received a significant amount of venture funding, and uh, they're generating a lot of hype because mm. they hit that sweet spot of cover crops, which, of course, we've talked about a lot. It's a very hot topic right now. But more importantly, it's a cash crop. Mm-hmm. So it's a cover crop that pays, and you know that's, uh, that's hitting, the, hitting the right marks, I think. So listeners, stay tuned. But before we get to that, Delaney, we got to hit some news, don't we? We do, Mike. I'm going to kick it off here by going through a little bit of kind of the more specifics of, we're not calling it NAFTA, it's called the North, whatever, I don't know, U.S.-Canada-Mexico-Canada U.S., Agreement. Agreement. Yeah. We'll call it NAFTA 2.0 for the podcast purposes. That'll be N-squared. easier. N-squared. Yeah, N-squared. So let's go over here just a couple of Finer points from N squared. As I mentioned yesterday, the big one for dairy producers is that they are going to eliminate the class seven dairy structure. But it looks like we also have a couple wins for some other commodity groups. Um, for uh, the class seven dairy structure there, just really quick, it looks like within six months of implementation of the final agreement, Canada has also agreed to phase in increases for the U.S., to access its tightly controlled market. So seeing some expansion there for the dairy industry. For wheat farmers, it says especially those near the Canadian border, they will also reap some benefits because Canada has agreed to change the way that it allows and um, grades wheat when it comes into the country. So I think we've talked about that a little bit on the podcast Yeah, because before it was all feed wheat. Right. So under current policy, it's all feed wheat. It looks like they're changing the way that that's going to be done. It's going to take a little bit longer to implement, it sounds like, but at least it's a step in the right direction. And then, Yeah, for sure. And then finally, it looks like the poultry industry is also getting some bigger wins through the NAFTA agreement or NAFTA 2.0 agreement because of the way that they're doing their new TRQs. And does that stand for ton ton rate quota sure i, I think, was gonna say total request live but that's different that's what i think it's like. ton rate quota or ton tariff quota or tariff, tariff rate, rate quota yeah, yeah i'm not sure anyways it's changing the way um that canada allows quotas into the u.s or i mean into canada from the u.s and there's going to be 
a new 57,000 ton quota for chicken that kicks in in six months as well after the agreement is signed, with also an increase of an extra 10 million dozen eggs for hey. the first year. Well, good. That'll help keep those Canadians strong. They'll be eating their bacon, or as they call it, yes. what, Canadian bacon, and the good old American eggs probably grown right here in Iowa. So good for them. Yes. Good for you, Canada. It does sound like the – so really, I guess the steps we have left are for Congress and for President Trump to sign the agreement. President Trump said in some remarks to reporters that, quote, I plan to sign the agreement by the end of November. By then we'll have – it's submitted for approval by Congress, where in theory there should be no be no trouble, but anything you submit to Congress is trouble. And so when he was asked if he expected a quick approval by Congress, he replied and said that he was not confident, not at all confident, and predicted a political battle with Democrats. So we do have to see it still yeah. pass through Congress, and Congress is in recess now until, I think, after the midterm elections. So I don't know... Oh how that works if they can still vote on things when they're not in session or. Yeah, who knows? But we also, as uh, what Mr. Trudeau said yesterday, we need to see the U.S. pull the aluminum tariffs right. off for Canada to sign off on it. So a couple more hurdles, but at least we're getting the right news out there in the market at a time when we needed it, Delaney, that's for sure. Yes. Well, speaking of when we need it, you know, a lot of farmers, myself included, if you work with a bank outside the farm credit system, chances are you work with a smaller community bank. And uh, those were the banks that were hit the hardest when Dodd-Frank rules and regulations came into being. And this is an issue that, you know, is kind of personal to me because I was working at the bank when Dodd-Frank was being written. And I tell you what, it made life just a nightmare for everybody who was out there trying to do, you know, regular banking stuff. And uh, Randall Quarles, who is the Fed's vice chair for supervision, this is the guy who oversees basically all the rulemaking for banks. He said he is planning to propose simplified rules for banks under $250 billion in assets by the end of the year, which would cover pretty much all of the rural community banks in the U.S. So growers, if you haven't been in to see your lender, um, you know, now or throughout this next part of the year, perhaps some of the requirements might be getting to be a little less stringent, which, given the trouble we're having in farm country, again, couldn't come at a better time, Delaney. Yeah, I'm confused. Why are they becoming less stringent? Because when Dodd-Frank was passed, it was written basically to punish, you know, Wells Fargo and Countrywide Financial and the banks that had caused the mortgage crisis. But when they wrote the rules, they didn't differentiate it by size of bank. Mm -hmm. So like my local bank, the you know, first bank of the community is uh, subject to the same rules and regulations as like Wells Fargo with trillions of dollars under management and they do completely different things. So now they're trying to find a more common sense approach and let smaller banks continue to do vehicle lending and farm lending and all this stuff without meeting all the paperwork requirements that they require of, Wells Fargo or Bank of America or the big dogs who do, you know, all sorts of stuff. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. It kind of levels the playing field. Yeah, it does. Well, something yep, that so. is not leveling the playing field, Mike, oh. is the trade aid package. The American yes. Farm Bureau did an, an analysis and AgriPulse reported on it this morning, kind of about how some of the aid package is uh, being paid out across some of the states and it looks like Illinois farmers are going to get the most payment or 
payout on soybean acres as compared to other states. Payments from soy, for soybean acres, according to the American Farm Bureau's analysis, will be $54.45 per acre in Illinois. Nebraska comes in second at $51.15 per acre. Four other states will receive an average of $47 per acre. Um, and then some of the lowest will be including Oklahoma growers, which will receive $26 per acre. But there's a really interesting chart on if you just Google um, trade aid analysis, American Farm Bureau, this article should pull up. It's called Trade Aid Round One, a state perspective. They have an interesting map on here that shows kind of the payouts by state. And it really looks like the Corn Belt region is, of course, getting hit the hardest, but also receiving the greatest payout as far as all commodities go. And then when sure. you look at soybean facilitation, it's really the states that kind of connect to Iowa. So Wisconsin, Nebraska, South Dakota, Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, and Ohio are definitely getting the greatest payout there. But just well, a lot of interesting charts. Yeah, it absolutely does. Because, I mean, it's it's just based on yield per acre, and those are right. the states with the highest yield. Yes, absolutely. Huh. Interesting. Well, yeah, folks, get in there and, and Google that up. Uh, blow your mind with some charts and some graphs and some maps, which is always fun to watch. Yes. You know, while you're looking at the map, Delaney, you can draw your finger straight south from that hot spot of soybean payments into West Texas. And West Texas, this is coming back to a topic I've talked about a lot because it's, I guess, kind of become a hobby horse of mine, which is the crude oil pricing. I mentioned yesterday that we had the analysts come out and say, well, this could be the year crude oil prices turn back down because of increased pumping. Well, we've got a report today that West Texas oil drillers are producing so much oil, they have overwhelmed the region's infrastructure. Basically, oil prices in West Texas have fallen apart because they are out of storage, they are out of pipelines, they are basically just buying trucks to store this crude oil because so much of it is coming out of the ground as guys were rushing to increase production while the price of crude climbed. Basically, right now, the Permian Basin, which is western Texas's largest oil field, actually, it's the largest oil field in the U.S., it is now producing 3.4 million barrels of crude oil per day, which is mm. mind-bogglingly huge. That is a lot. Yeah, so maybe we'll see this uh, crude make its way into the system and bring prices back down before we get to spring. Well, you, I mean, you keep talking about it, so maybe we will. I know. Well, I can't make up my mind. I was just going to say. Well, it's going to go higher. Price (laughs) it in. I'm like, well, I don't know. Maybe it's going to go lower. I would not make it very far as a crude energy analyst, Delaney. I think that's what we're looking at. I think that you're right, Mike. Yeah, not very far at all. Let's see. Um, What was my other news? Oh, other news for today is uh, President Trump has made an, well, I wouldn't say an announcement, but has said that India called on Monday saying that they want to start negotiations immediately for a free trade agreement. We've talked about this a little bit before. This isn't the first time that India has been in the trade spotlight. But uh, a funny quote here from President Trump, he said that India said, we want to keep your president happy. And President Trump responded and said, isn't that nice? It's true. They have to keep us happy. (laughs) (laughs) That is a... It seems like a classic President Trump line yeah, right there. Yeah, I thought it was great. I liked it. but uh, Okay, so we don't know a timeline or anything, but at least they're having that conversation. Right, and it looks like 
some of the trade delegation has gone to India a couple of times over the past, well, really over the past couple of months in, in uh, President Trump's administration here. USDA Undersecretary for Trade and Foreign Affairs Ted McKinney has been there. Robert Lighthizer has been there over the last year. So it sounds like they are looking to uh, open some trade negotiations there. Exciting stuff. All right. Well, we'll keep our fingers crossed. And Delaney, I've got just one other piece of news here. And this is something that we are going to have to do some research on and hopefully get these guys on the podcast. But we've talked a lot, most notably with our good friend Darren Newsom, about the USDA's World Agricultural Supply and Demand Estimates, Mm -hmm. looking at end-of-season yields. And Darren has said, and a lot of analysts have said, that, you know, you can't really count on them. In fact, just this most recent WASDE, they changed the soybean yield from last year, a year after harvest. Well, researchers at the University of Illinois have developed a new method that outperforms the USDA's estimations. And uh, they're saying that they can do it in a scientifically rigorous and reproducible way. And what they're doing is they're combining seasonal forecasts, kind of the same method that USDA uses, with satellite data. And then they're running this through a computer that has a very advanced yield prediction system that's, you know, top secret. And then they're coming out with real-time estimates for both the national and county level. And they say we can do this way better than the USDA's real-time estimation. And they're planning to spend more money and more time studying it here over the next couple of years. But they believe that what they've put together so far, they say, quote, compared with using historical climate information for the unknown future, which is what most research is based on, using climate prediction from NOAA's National Centers for Environmental Prediction gave better forecasting and combined with satellites, gives us more accurate yield numbers throughout the growing season. So, hmm, I mean, it's going to be, I'm going to be interested to hear Daniel's perspective on this. Yeah, because if they're actually getting legitimate estimations of the crop, I've got to imagine, you know, that's a good thing. Because he doesn't like the USDA because, you know, they just kind of, you know, allegedly make numbers up, mm-hmm. which the fact that they can revise harvest numbers a year later, yeah, certainly seems that Darren might be onto something there. Hmm. I would say so you're right. So keep an eye out. I'll reach out to these folks and see if we can't get them to come on and, you know, maybe give us a little insight what it means. What kind of satellite data are they using? What, uh, how does this all work? And see if we can't put something together. Maybe we'll get them on with Darren. Okay. Yeah, that'd be an interesting, uh, interesting roundtable discussion, wouldn't it? It would. Well, speaking of Darren... Should we get over to the markets? Let's do it, Delaney. And I'm going to have to turn to you to bring us the market update for the day. Yeah, I'm running out of data there, Mike. You better lay off yes. lay off the tweeting. Yeah, no, not going to happen. I get more <laughs> data tomorrow. <laughs> All right. Well, let's transition here into the markets. And, of course, our markets are sponsored by our partners at the Zaner Group. They're in Chicago. Give them a call today at 312-277-0050 and give them a call. They really know what they're talking about. They are there to help you answer your questions about marketing and selling and hedging your commodities. Starting here in the December corn contract, finished up across the board in all the grains today. The December corn contract up a penny and three quarters at 367 and a half, while the March up a penny and three quarters to end at 379 and a half. In the soybean pits, we saw strong gains here at the end of the day. The November contract finished up eight and a quarter cent at eight sixty six even, while the January finished also up eight and a quarter cent at eight eighty eight even. In the Chicago wheat pits, the December contract put on nine and three quarter cents to end at five nineteen and a quarter, while the March put on nine and a quarter cent to end at five thirty eight even. 
Hopping over to the livestock pits, the October live cattle contract put on 30 cents at 113.97.5, while the December put on 52.5 cents at 119.47.5. In the feeder cattle pits, the October contract put on 42.5 cents to close at 159.07.5, while the November gained 55 cents to close at 159.57.5. The lean hog markets finished mixed today with the October contract up $1.67.5 at 66.42. While the December down 70 cents to finish at 59.15. And of course, rounding out the morning here with the dairy markets. Class 3 September contract unchanged for the day at 16.11, while the October put on 3 cents at 15.93. Now, with that, let's turn it over here to our Tech Tuesday interview. Well, folks, it is hashtag Tech Tuesday once again, and today we are talking to Christine Handel. She is the VP of Strategy and Operations at a company called Arvigenics. Christine, thanks for taking the time to talk to us. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Now, Arvigenics is doing something very cool with a plant a lot of us know of as a weed. But before we get into that, I want to talk about the history of Arvigenics. How long have you guys been around as a company? So we actually started here in St. Louis in 2013, and uh, the beginning of the company was uh, pretty much a collection of lines of pentacrest that would happen naturally across the U.S. So we build what we call a germplasm bank, so sources of different types of pentacrest from 25 states in the U.S. That was the first step. Uh, after that, we started a plant breeding program, or actually in parallel to that, we started a breeding program and testing of all those lines and to see uh, which combinations of those lines would yield better for the farmers and produce more final grain uh, to be processed into oil and meal for animal feed. So, Chris, tell us then, how did you get into using pennycress as a cover crop for farmers and growers? Okay. So actually, the first work with pennycress started at uh, USDA in Peoria, uh, especially with Dr. Terry Isbell. So uh, Dr. Isbell uh, was curious to see uh, if some of this winter annual uh, so-called weeds would be early enough to mature before soybean planting time. And if they would produce something that would be of uh, interest, of commercial interest. And uh, he uh, evaluated uh, quite a few of those plants and uh, saw that pennycress had an initial level of yield that was pretty good of grain yield and that it was the earliest plant around. So once you really understand what pennycress is and once you see pictures or you see the plant, it's really easy to visit the to see it out in the field and on the side mm-hmm. of the roads uh, in May, mid-May uh, or late May. And so based on the on the USDA work, uh, we saw that and uh, decided to create a commercial company to develop this into a high-yielding crop that would also start as a cover crop to have kind of a, a dual opportunity for farmers. So it would be a, we call it the cover crop that pays. So it'll be a cover crop in uh, late fall. Uh, it stays really well over winter. It's very winter hardy, and it's really fast in early spring to generate those seeds and um, and have the the high oil grain that we see in pentacrass. Now, for those of us like Delaney and I who grew up in southern Iowa, parts of Missouri, Illinois, Indiana, you know, kind of the 
the heart of the Corn Belt, we're all pretty familiar with Pennycrest the weed. For our listeners who are outside of the Corn Belt, maybe they're in California or Oregon uh, or the Southeast, tell us a little bit about the plant itself. What is it that makes Pennycrest such a prolific seed producer? Okay, so um, Pennycrest is a plant from the mustard family, and uh, it, it just like naturally the mustards produce a lot of seed. And uh, there are some characteristics in the mustard family that are really interesting, like uh, they produce a natural uh, protection for the plants. Uh, the, the, the name for this product is called glucosinolate. In Pennycrass, we only have one type of this, which is called cinnamon. And um, at the end of the day, that's something that helps um, with plant protection and growing this plant so much. Uh, but... We want to reduce that in the seed so that the meal tastes better for the animals. But it's a combination of factors. So the, the, the weeds actually um, have this tendency to produce a lot of seed and to actually release the seeds in a, in a timing fashion. What you do when you're, uh, it's so-called, uh, we call it domestication of a, of, a, of a weed. So we need to domesticate a weed. We try to keep some of the good traits that the weeds developed throughout evolution and then change some of the other ones to make it into a real crop that farmers can grow and harvest and we can have a final product from. That's kind of like the natural path. We compare ourselves to canola development, if you if you think. Um, so canola was developed um, through decades of plant breeding and there wasn't there wasn't enough of the modern tools to help canola breeders to really develop this fast. And we were able to use those in Pennycrest to really make this transformation from the weed Pennycrest to what we are going to rename as Covercrest. So canola did the same thing. Canola, when they started, they used a plant called rapeseed. And once they made the changes, they, trans- they, they relaunched the, the plant, the new plant, as canola. So, Penny, will the cover cress, is that the same genetic makeup, or would you consider it the same seed then as what farmers find in their fields with penny cress, or are they, is it a modified genetic version of penny cress? So, our crop will be non-GMO, so it's not a transgenic plant, mm-hmm. uh, but it has some very specific uh, differences from the penny cress that farmers find in their fields. So um, the most visual one is that our crop will not be a dark seed like the normal penny crust. So the farmers, when they when they harvest or when they grab a little bit of this weed in their fields at, at seed production time, they'll see that the seeds are small and very dark. They're like this dark brown. Our seed cover crust will be a, a yellowish golden color. And that's for a reason that it reduces a lot the fiber content. And we found a natural mutant that actually has this this characteristic. It has a, one gene that is well defined in some other plants, like Herbidopsis, which is a model plant for science. Uh, and this gene just doesn't work. And so, when this gene doesn't work, the layers that cover the seed are different. And so, our seed is gold color, and it has a lot like half the fiber of the non the regular pennycrash. That's why we're, we're renaming it, because it's not just growing the regular pennycrass and improving yield. 
Right. I mean, it's a whole it's a whole new crop and hopefully a paying crop. But I've got to ask, Chris, as a grower, if I see my neighbor seeing seeding down covercress, boy, I'm going to get awful concerned about escapes and drift. And how do you plan to manage the, you know, inevitable late harvest, which causes seeds to blow around in the wind a little while? Is that a concern? You know, we used to get that question way when we first started. And then once we started really talking to farmers and getting involved with the farmers, uh, there were a few farmers near Peoria where the USDA worked with this that had worked with class before. And the funny side of this is that they call it a very wimpy weed. So oh, good. It was any, <laughs> yeah, with any type of like tillage or any herbicide, there is no herbicide resistance. So uh, it, it's very easily controlled. And even the farmers, like after we grow either a research field or um, a demonstration field, uh, the farmers really don't consider this a concern for them at all. Huh. They don't consider it a concern because why? Because it's so easy to kill. Well, yeah. mainly, okay. It, well, there are two things, actually. It's easy to kill and it's a winter annual. Oh. So it, it really does not like the heat. So what we consider the big crops, so corn and soy, are summer crops. So pennycress, as it does not like the weed, it doesn't grow when it's hot. So we don't see it's not a problem to the farmers when they're growing Mm -hmm. their cash crops. Gotcha. Nature just takes its course. Sorry, Delaney, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, Chris, you also called called uh, covercress a cash crop. You alluded to it a little bit earlier on, but how will this become a, a cash crop for growers other than just providing some environmental benefits of being a cover crop between the fall and, and uh, spring season for growers? Okay, thanks for asking that. So um, the, the, the model that we are designing and why we're improving pennycress or covercress for, it's a model where the farmer harvests uh, covercress uh, before the end of May. And then, and we are also improving the maturity date so that they harvest this earlier and earlier as we develop and breed this crop. Uh, but right now they harvest this crop before the end of May in time to plant a full season of soy. And the grain of covercress they would uh, deliver to a specific point. And we're, we're right now developing all the, the downstream part of this but there would be a processing partner working with us who would crush the seed to produce oil and animal feed. So the seed is roughly, if you want to use just round numbers, it's roughly 30% oil. Uh, it's a very high quality oil. And uh, the leftover, the animal meal part of it, it's about 40% protein. So mm. it's a very good animal protein as well, or source of protein for animals as well. So now, talk us through the logistics. How close are we to seeing covercrest rolled out as a cover crop on farms across the Midwest? So um, we are not ready yet. <laughs> we, we really wish we were. We have been so excited about this project. Uh, we are planning uh, what we call a beta launch, so mm-hmm. a, a bigger, fee, a bigger demonstration uh, moment in 2020, and a full launch by 2021. So it's not that far, but it's not ready yet. What we are starting to have is uh, small demonstration fields for farmers. So we'll post more of that on our website and and have farmers and talk to farmers uh, about showing up and looking at these fields, especially when they're almost ready either to be harvested or like for some of farmers that are closer to these fields, 
check out uh, like how fast this plant grows in the in early spring because it's really amazing how fast it grows. So we're we want far- farmers to be more um, familiar with this plant and feel more comfortable about it because it's it's a decision that it's not every day they have to make. You know, to use a new crop in your land. And Chris, before we let you go, if farmers are interested in learning more about your demonstrations and want to see one for themselves, give us the website or way that they can contact you for more information. Okay, so the website, the name is a little, the, the name of the company is a little hard to say. It's called Arvigenics. So our website is www.arvigenics.com, which is spelled A-R-V-E-G-E-N-I-X.com. And there's an email that actually I get all the emails and I can help um, responding and uh, sending video links to farmers, which is info at arvigenics.com. And so if you see on our website, there is that link for that email as well. Fantastic. It's exciting to see decades of innovation coming to fruition here in the next couple of years. Chris Handel, thank you so much for taking the time to fill us in on Covercress. Thank you guys for the invitation. Arvigenics is really excited to share all this project. Well, big thanks to Chris Handel there for talking to us and filling us in. Delaney, you know, I grew up trying to kill Pennycress, and now we're going to be planting it and hopefully making some money from it. That's pretty exciting. I think it's going to be interesting to see how farmers adapt or adopt or react to this technology. Absolutely. You know, I got to imagine farmers pretty pragmatic bunch if there's a way to make it pencil i got a feeling we'll see it spreading across some acres yeah i think you're right there mike well delaney speaking of penciling if people want to take any notes from our previous episodes they can of course find them on our website at agnewsdaily.com or they can interact with us share some ideas any companies that we need to be talking to for tech tuesday give us a holler find us on twitter and facebook at agnewsdaily with that delaney should we let the people go let's let them go